All right, Mark chapter 1. If you found that, why don't you stand? We'll read together God's Word. Mark chapter 1, ver uh, starting in verse 14. Mark has gotten us through the introduction, and then verse 14 starts the actual ministry of Jesus. It, it, it comes in two parts, verse 14 and 15. We have what Jesus preaches, and then verse 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, you have the call of the closest disciples, James and John, uh, Simon and Andrew. Let's go to Mark 1, 14. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's begin verse 14. <clears throat> now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you be to become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants. They followed him. Let's pray. <clears throat> father, I pray in the name of Jesus that you will awaken men and women that are dead in sin. Father, I pray for those that have been casual about their own walk with you, that today would be the day of awakening, a day where your gospel is loved and taken seriously. God, would you give us a church of men and women that are so serious about Christ that everything else fades. I pray you would start that now, even here. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <clears throat> President Roosevelt called it a day that will live in infamy, December the 7th, 1941. When the United States was drugged into World War II, Japan unprovokedly, Japan attacked Pearl Harbor, and there the Pacific fleet was wiped out. And the sleeping giant was awakened. While that was going on in the United States, Germany started tightening its grip. Belgium fell and France would fall and Hitler was eyeing England. In the mid-1940s, the, the grip that Adolf Hitler had on Germany was complete. Not just the leaders politically, but the leaders religiously in Germany. Germany, that great country where we look back and thank God for the Protestant Reformation. Germany. Germany had long since abandoned the tenets of the Protestant faith and liberalism had seeped in and would seep over into the United States at some point. The state church, which was a Lutheran church, the state church had yielded to Adolf Hitler and was doing part of his bidding. 
But like always, God had a remnant there in Germany. They called themselves the Confessing Church, the church that held on to the truth of the Bible and the clarity of the gospel. Several men and women were part of that church. One became famous. His name is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a confirmed bachelor, although at one point engaged. Dietrich Bonhoeffer came up in a religiously liberal home and studied the liberal theology that Germany was putting out at the time. But he made the mistake of coming to the United States, and in New York he happened to go into an African-American church. There he heard the gospel. His life was changed. Rumblings of war were coming in. He could have stayed in the United States, but he went back home to be with his people. There he led the confessing church. The problem with leading a confessing church under a dictatorship is it puts a bullseye on your back. And he certainly had one on his. Became part of a move to do away with Hitler. The Gestapo knew of his existence and his leadership, and they knew he was a part of the plan to assassinate Hitler. They finally caught up with him and arrested him in 1944. You think the Gestapo was bad in 1944, 1945, he was taken to Buchenwald, the death camp, where so many Jews would be killed. 1945, if you know history, at the outset of 1945, here we have World War II coming to an end. The Americans have come across the Rhine. They are in Germany. Hitler will soon be dead by a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Why? Why would you kill that man? You can find the poem written in prison, Who Am I? You can probably find that on the Internet. So moving. They walked him out that day. His allies were coming in. They walked him out of his cell that day and into where the hangman would meet him. The attending physician said that they had never, later on, the attending physician said he'd never seen a man die so bravely. Remember, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is the one who said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Bonhoeffer stood upon the stool and they put the noose around his neck and they give him a few final words. And this is what he said before they tighten the noose. Today is the end. But for me, it is the beginning. That's the kind of faith that I want. That's the kind of faith that you and I are going to need as we go into the future. A future that the Lord, of course, waits on us there, but a future that is filled with peril in a world that has lost its mind. This is not the first time it's happened. It's always been like that. In fact, we pick up a story in the Gospel of Mark. Mark has given us an introduction. We know that there are lots of things going wrong, and yet Jesus has shown up. We know that he's been out into the wilderness for temptation, Now, coming out of the wilderness, we see his ministry begin. And today, we see the call of Jesus. And I want to use the words of Bonhoeffer. Will you come and die? 
Not, not play religion, not casual Christianity, not going to church because it feels right, hoping to feel better. Will you come and die? This morning we look at this passage, it's broken up, I, I mentioned that in the introduction. It's broken up into two sections and they really are what drives the two questions that become my points that I hope that you'll process. I'll offer it up in two questions. Here's the first one. Number one, will you hear what he says? Will you hear what Jesus says? You, will you put away what you've heard other people say about the religion of Jesus, and will you hear what he actually preaches? Let's get to the background in verse 14. Notice what Mark gives us. He gives us a timestamp in verse 14. He says, now after John was arrested... <clears throat> Mark moves so quickly that he knows you might be disoriented as to where this is in the story of Jesus, and so he brings us up to date. John and Jesus, John the Baptist and Jesus, would have crossover in the desert. You would see in the other Gospels where some that were with John the Baptist would end up with Jesus. We meet a couple here. So Mark knows he's been going so quickly, he, he drops us right here with a timestamp when John was arrested. That word arrested, when John was delivered up. It's the same word that uh, Mark will use to describe what happens to Jesus when he is delivered up to be crucified. So that John the Baptist is not just a, a forerunner, he is a foreshadowing of Jesus. John the Baptist has served his purpose. All of us at some point or other will serve our purpose and history moves on. Mark gives us, gives us a time stamp when John the Baptist is put in jail. Why is he there? He told Herod that what he was doing was adultery. Be careful when you speak truth to power. Said to Herod, you, you took your brother's wife, it's adultery. And Herod, who's a king, you're a dictator, you do what you want, he put him in jail. Mark 6, we'll find out he's going to have his head cut off, but that's it's another day. The timestamp tells us after John has been, after Jesus, John has been arrested. <clears throat> he brings us then in verse 14 to the gravity of the message of Jesus. Before Mark tells us exactly what Jesus preaches, he gives us some description of it in verse 14. Join me there. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, and here's what he was doing. He is preaching... The gospel of God. That's an inter interesting way to say what Jesus is doing. He's giving us an understanding that this is not just a new way to live. This is not just a path to follow. This is not even just a new religion. What you have here is gospel, which means good news. And that good news is coming from God. Mark says there is gravity in this message. This is the same phrase that the Apostle Paul will pick up and he writes Romans to give us all of that theology. He says, this is the gospel of God. This is the good news that comes from God. This good news is about God. Let's you and I be careful when we think about the gospel and how it applies to us. So oftentimes we reverse the roles and we think that the gospel is all about you. That when Jesus was on the cross, you were on his mind. Brothers and sisters, when Jesus is on the cross, the glory of God is on his mind, and God is glorified when sinners are saved. It's the gospel not of self-help, you getting better. 
It is the gospel of God. This book in front of us is not something that is just a, not something that is just a manual, a user's manual for life. This is the story of God. God speaking to you and coming to you and pursuing you. It is the gospel of God. If it is the gospel of God, it is God's prerogative. He writes out how it will happen. He gives us what it takes to be saved. He tells us how we are to live. It is the gospel of God. It's good for us to remember the gravity of the message. What is the gravity of that message? It's the good news about God, that He is a God of grace. He is a God of love. The Bible tells us He is a God who plans, who calls, who saves. He's a God who has sustained you. It's the gospel of God. The gravity of the message reminds us of the holiness of God, the justice of God. It reminds us of the mercy of God. That this gospel came from God. It's the gravity of the message, but let's get to what Jesus says. Let's go to the content of the message. You'll find it in verse 15. <clears throat> the content, what does Jesus actually preach? You have two statements and then two commands. Two statements and two commands. In the two statements, you have a lot of theology, and the two commands are called for action. Those two statements that you find there are packed with theological significance. Notice what he says in verse 15. This is what he preaches. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Let's deal with the first one. The time is fulfilled. Now, when you're reading Greek, you would come up on two different words for time. One is the word chronos. It's what we use when we talk about what time is it, uh, how much time will that preacher use when he's preaching. When you're sitting here listening to me, you get bored with the message, look at your watch, time. That's chronos. That's not the word used here. There's another word that is kairos, K-A-I-R-O-S, kairos. That is the idea of something so epic that history turns is a historic event. That's the word that Jesus uses. What he preaches is that the kairos has come. That all that creation has been groaning for, everything the prophets in the Old Testament spoke of, the hope of all mankind that the universe would hinge on the kairos has been fulfilled. The content of this message is here is the most epic event that the universe has ever known, that Jesus Christ came into the world, that creation has grown. This is what Paul would say in Galatians, uh, Galatians chapter 4 when he says that in the fullness of time. In fact, if you take that backwards, the way Jesus said it is, the time, the kairos, is fulfilled. That word fulfilled is plural. Ramo, it means to, to superfill, to not just, this is the way R.C. Sproul explained it. He said that if I ask for a glass of tea and, uh, and you fill it up, but you leave enough room in that glass of tea that when I tip it up to drink it, it doesn't spill all over me. But if you have, you know, 11th grade mind, like mine, somebody says a glass of tea, I might fill it all the way up to the very brim so you can't move it. And when you go to move it, it's going to spill out everywhere. That's the word here that the time has absolutely come at last, fulfilled in every possible way. And the message that Jesus preaches is about himself, that the time is fulfilled. 
Not only that, but I want you to notice what else he says about himself. The time is fulfilled. The next statement is the kingdom of God. Verse 15, look at it. The kingdom of God is at hand. Do you see that? The kingdom of God. Now, there's a lot of discussion on what that means, the kingdom of God. There uh, have been books written on the kingdom of God. So we, we won't discuss all of the ways it could be understood as the kingdom of God, except to say when the king comes, he brings the kingdom with him. Jesus comes and says that all you've been waiting for, creation has been groaning for this day, that time has been fulfilled, and the king is here. What does he mean, the kingdom? The ruler, the one who is sovereign. The two phrases that oftentimes are used to describe the kingdom of God is already, not yet. Already Jesus has come and established his kingdom. His kingdom is established whenever someone gives their life to Christ and the gospel bursts forth in a heart. Today we saw an inauguration into the kingdom. The kingdom of God is at hand. So that we live as outposts of the kingdom of God, but we live as outposts in a foreign land. Already the kingdom has been established, but not yet has it been consummated. We don't see everything under the rule of Christ. We see pictures of what it can look like. We don't see all of it. Still, we're in a broken world, broken creation, a sinful society. We live in a world that's in some sort of terrible, downward spiraling whirlpool, people reaching up for something to hold on to. We've seen this complete loss of humanity, loss of the image of God, loss of what it means to be a man or a woman, and it's absolute chaos. We stand here on this outpost and say, look, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is here. It's Jesus. Christ comes preaching the kingdom. You think when you read from chapter 1, you keep reading all the way through, you're going to see you're going to see Jesus cast out demons. You're going to see him. I mean, the demons know. They run. Why have you come? Have you come to destroy us? Is what the demon, what the devils say. You're going to see when the king comes, he, he provides this complete healing of people that were suffering. Why is that there? Not for us to fall off into some sort of health and wealth. It is there to remind us when the king comes, things are made whole. When he feeds the hungry, when he goes to the cross and there pays the debt, pays the price for all the sinners that will ever be saved, he pays that. And when God raises him from the dead, the miracle of the kingdom, all of that is in the future. For now, hear the message. The time has been fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Two statements. But now I want you to see the commands. I want you to see the cost of his message. More than likely, everybody sitting in this room, at some point or other, you have heard the gospel, and some, in some way you've understood the sequence of events and how to appropriate it to yourself, how you can actually become a Christian. But just because you understand it does not mean that you have given yourself and yielded to it. So you've heard the statements. Let's go to the cost of this message. Two commands right, in there, right there in the passage. You see the verse 15. <clears throat> The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent. Believe the gospel. Let's just deal with the first one, to repent. What does it mean to repent? Why do people hate the word repent? 
Oftentimes I've heard uh, preachers say to repent means to change your mind. Let's think deeply about repentance. Be careful of the phraseology to change your mind. Changing our mind is a pretty easy thing to do. Go to a restaurant and I'm having my order taken from the waitress and I say I'd like to have a cheeseburger and french fries and I, then I might say, no, you know what, I've changed my mind. I want a bacon cheeseburger and french fries. I'm off the apple train, by the way. Quit sending me things about apples. <laughs> See how easy it is to change your mind. I was eating apples, and you know what? This is terrible. Change my mind. Be careful how you use the phraseology to change your mind. To repent is more than just changing our mind. It's even more than just changing our mind that, that, that leads to a changed behavior. To repent in the biblical sense is to understand sin like God understands it. How does God understand is the most heinous thing that the wages of sin is death? To repent of sin and believe in the king is to say, what I've done is terrible. This is an offense to Almighty God. To hate sin and run from it. It's not just to repent of something you've done. All of us here can think of, even sitting here this morning, you could think of some terrible sin that you've done and, or thought, and so you want to not do It's not even enough to, to think of that and be sorry for it. Break down weeping. The word repentance has to do with an absolute turning away and running the other direction. That's why it goes with the word to believe. Why do people hate the word repent so much? Because when you repent of something, you are saying, I was absolutely wrong. Jesus comes and he gives a statement. The time has been fulfilled. The king is here. You need to turn from what you've done. I press it even a little further. There's a man named uh, Robert Owens. He wrote a book called Richard Robert, Richard, uh, Robert Richard Owens. I forgot his first name. Owens. He called a book called, wrote a book called Repentance. It's about that thick. It's intense. Repentance. His last name is Owens. I met him one time at a prayer conference. He looked like, if I could imagine what Elijah looked like. I mean, he's about 85 years old and had one eye gone. I think he's one-eyed. And uh, anyway, I, don't, I think he is. I was afraid to look him in the face. I don't really actually know. And if you read this book, uh, Repentance, it is so strong. And what, what Robert Owens says is that we don't just repent of things we've done. We repent of who we are. We don't just think God is going to wash certain things we've done away. We, we, the gospel tells us he's going to change who I am. One of the commands that Jesus gives is the command to repent, but it goes with the second command right up under it in verse 15. Repent and believe the gospel. Remember, this is a gospel of God. Repent and believe the gospel. That word believe means to trust, to release you holding on in a safety net and fall right into the gospel. This means for you to put all of your faith into the gospel. When I say the gospel, what do I mean? We hear it from time to time here. I, I'm talking about this creator God who is also the judge and he's judging his creation. People that have rebelled against his rule. We've all rebelled. We inherited a sinful nature from our parents, Adam and Eve. But it's more than that. We did that on our own free will. We just rebel against God. 
and, and condemnation hangs over every human that has rebelled. And the message is, the time is fulfilled. The, the kingdom is here. Turn from that. Come and trust. It hasn't fully developed yet in Mark, but this king will come and live in ways that you and I can't, perfectly fulfilling the law of God, earning the righteousness that you and I can't. He'll go to the cross. At the end of Mark, he'll be on the cross and there take the wrath of God. All of that condemnation, every bit of it, falls on Jesus and all that righteousness he earned goes to you when you repent and believe. But it means dying to yourself. Will you? Have you? Will you come and die? Will you hear what he says? That's verse 14 and 15. Let's go to the larger passage, but we'll go quicker through it. Here's another question. Will, will you do what he commands? Will you do what he commands? Now, verse 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, five verses they describe the call of four apostles. These four apostles, three of them will be in the inner circle, James and John and Peter. This describes the four closest to him. Remember, when Jesus was in the Judean desert, when he was by the Jordan, when John was down there preaching, people had to trek down from Jerusalem, go all the way down into the desert now, instead of everybody having to go to Jesus, Jesus, we are told, comes up out of the desert and to Galilee. He goes where the people are. Let's read the account of Jesus calling the four. Then I'll come back and make uh, just a little application. Let me read it. Verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee. So he's, the Sea of Galilee is a lake, really. About three times the size of Lake Norman. Passing Along the Sea of Lake or Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, that's Peter, Simon Peter, and Andrew, the brother of Simon, and they're casting a net into the sea. They are fishermen. Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little further, now Simon and Andrew and James and John knew each other. We read the other Gospels. They probably were in a partnership together along with James and John's father. This is not the first time that Jesus has met them. They left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them. They left their father Zebedee in the boat with hired servants and followed him. What do we learn? What do we learn just from, let's just take it as a whole. So I go through and pick out the personalities, take it as a whole. What do we learn? One thing we learn is that Jesus is the seeker. Jesus seeks people, goes after people. Came up out of the desert. He went to Galilee. That day and time, if you were going to be in the school of a rabbi, you would apply to that school. You would hope to get in to see that rabbi, be one of those students, much like it is trying to apply to a college. You apply hoping you are accepted by the rabbi. Here, this rabbi is different. He's not waiting on you to apply to him. He comes. Look, if you're a Christian, you didn't find Jesus. He found you. He came looking for his disciples. Something else we find, uh, just in a basic way, in verse 17, 
that, that Christ is sovereign. In verse 17, this is what he does. He does it with Simon and uh, Andrew. He does it with James and John. He just gives one call. Follow me. And they follow. Now, if I walk into a room and I say to a bunch of people that don't know me, hey, follow me. They're going to throw rocks. I don't have any reason to give them to follow me. We don't know that Jesus has offered anything. This call is clear. It is unconditional. And they responded. Here's the power of God in the call. Here's the picture of God creating what He commands. That when He calls you, He gives you the heart to believe that. To turn to Him. Here's this sovereign picture of Christ. It's an overwhelming picture of grace. I'll give you another principle you can learn from this story, verse 17 and 18. And that is that um, He will not be second place. Brothers and sisters, this is the plague of American Christianity. Christ when it's convenient. Verse 17 and verse 18, Jesus comes and, and we see him calling and the text says they left their nets. These are not minimum wage workers. These are businessmen. The Sea of Galilee is teeming with fish. They've built the business. They have partners. Their partner's father is involved. This is not them leaving a menial job. This is turning away from a complete lifestyle. Something that would be lucrative and provide for their family. Here's this call. What is it that's keeping you? What is it that's keeping you, giving your life to Christ? What are you holding on to that seems better? You should hear that He will not Play second to anything. Something else to learn here, and that is that there is, there is no, I mean, the call is so clear, there is no prerequisite. There is nothing that Jesus says, here's what you have to do to be a part of this kingdom except what he has preached, and that is repent, believe. There's nothing he says to Simon or to Andrew or to James and John. These are not great people. James and John have the, they have the nicknames Sons of Thunder. You don't get that helping old ladies across the street. Well, you know about Peter and how mouthy he, these are men that needed change. And Jesus didn't say, now look, you need to get your act together and then, then you come and join me. No, follow. The beauty of God's grace in Jesus is you come like you are, but you never stay like you are. There's no prerequisite. I'll give you another principle that you might see in verse 18 and then also in verse 20. That is that there is no room for hesitation. There's no room for that. Mark uses his word immediately. That word that he will use over and over again, he uses that to to sort of hustle the story along. 
verse 18, he tells us, And immediately Simon and Andrew, they left their nets and followed him. Drop down to verse 20. And immediately he called them, that's James and John, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat. You know, you can stand there and resist and hold on and quit and the conviction will, it'll, it's, it'll pass for a little while. You know how guilt sometimes comes in these waves and you feel it, but if you just, if you can, some of you have de developed such a willpower that it'll pass. We come to church on a day like today and we sing the songs we did that are so m moving. We see the, a, a grown man in front of his friends and peers and body of Christ who said, I have died with Christ, been raised to new life. And here, the call of Jesus, the kingdom is here. There's no room for hesitation. Immediately, the text says, immediately they went to him. I'll give you another point. You'll find it uh, down in verse 20. There is nothing worth missing Jesus. Simon and Peter, uh, Simon and Andrew had a great career. But not only did James and John have a great career, notice what they're going to leave in verse 20. Immediately he called them, they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed Jesus. Look, man, there's no future. There's no future plans you have that keep you from surrendering your life or hearing the call of God on your life. What is it that has you procrastinating? What is it that has you dulling your senses? Some purpose, some career, maybe one day when, the, when you get the kids raised, get the house paid off. Let me just tell you, there's nothing worth missing Jesus. One last one I'll give it to you. It's that phrase you all know. It's found in verse 17. His purpose in your life is greater. His purpose is greater. Jesus says, verse 17, you fish now, I will make you into something different. I'll make you into fishers of men. What is God calling you to do? I'll, I'll close this message and I'll just put it before you. Today, will you, will you come and die? Will you hear what Jesus says? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. Repent and trust. Will you do what he commands? Follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. This morning as we close our time together, let's end it praying. I want to pray for you. I want to guide you through with a couple of questions. I want you to join me with an, just with an attitude of prayer. And after I pray, we're going to sing a song. I have several other songs to sing, but this song will be a time of inviting and reflecting and maybe coming forward and praying. With your heads bowed this morning, let me ask you a question. What do you, what do you need to lay down? What do you need to lay down? What do you need to let go of?
or something you've been very casual with, today you've been made acutely aware that God sees, God calls. What do you need to stop playing games with God over? What grace, what, what grace do you need? Let's not forget our God is a God of grace. It is the gospel, the good news of God. It comes with grace that you may feel so ashamed, so sinful. What grace do you need? You fly, run to Jesus. What do you need to repent of? What is that? It needs to change. It happens when you repent. When we sing this worship song, I want to invite you to come. Pastors are here to pray with you and pray for you. Father, we pray in the name of Jesus that you help us. We thank you for the beauty and the grace of the gospel, the gospel of God. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We pray that you'd find us faithful, strengthen our church, make our fellowship one that reflects the good grace of God found in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.